this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Patrons of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast get free audiobooks and bonus episodes. Hey everybody, this is Linus Wilson. On this episode, we're going to hear the first four chapters of Sailing to Treasure Island, The Cruise of the Zora by Captain J.C. Voss. This is part of the sailing classic, The Ventures and Voyages of Captain Voss. This is the abridged, annotated, and edited version of that sailing classic, first published in Yokohama, Japan in 1913. You can give the ebook or paperback to your favorite sailor by going to lulu.com and getting a copy of Sailing to Treasure Island. You can get the second half of the audiobook by making the minimum pledge on patreon.com slash slowboatsail and all patrons of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast will get this audiobook and my book, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time, for free. In this reading, you'll hear Captain Voss, the master storyteller, the teller of sailing yarns. I think one of the things that strikes you about Voss versus other sailing authors is all his stories have the element of yarn to them. Captain Voss was born in Germany in 1858 and died in Tracy, California in 1922. There's a lot of misinformation out there that says he was lost at sea, but no, he wasn't. He died on land uh, and unlike Joshua Slocum was never lost at sea. Uh, Captain Voss was a professional mariner, and he was a professional mariner after this voyage. But he also owned some hotels in Victoria, British Columbia, where he calls his home, and you can see his famous voyaging canoe, sailing canoe, Tillicum, at the museum there. This book is about the cruise of the Zora, which he undertook in 1898, and the book opens in 1897. At this time, Captain Joshua Slocum is still sailing around the world alone. It's unclear in the cruise of the Zora if Voss was aware of Slocum's voyage, but he certainly was aware of Slocum's voyage when he undertook his 40,000 miles in a sailing canoe and sailed from British Columbia to England, beginning in 1901. But this story is about the treasure hunt for the treasure of Lima. So the treasure of Lima is valued at over $200 million today. It weighs many tons, has many tons of gold. It has a solid gold, uh, Virgin Mary, uh, many jewels, and has been the subject of over 300 treasure hunting expeditions, of which Captain Voss's voyage is one of them. And this is a, you know, just a marvelous story as he tells it, and it echoes much of Treasure Island. And perhaps it echoes uh, Treasure Island, the Robinson Crusoe story of pegleg pirates and a uh, parrot that says pieces of eight. The Robinson Crusoe story may have been inspired by the treasure of Lima. Uh, which was a story that started in 1820 when the sack of Lima was imminent and a British sea captain was supposed to guard it, but instead he stole it 
and he hid it somewhere, but nobody knows where he hid it. But supposedly he directed the Peruvian Navy to Cocos Island, and then he and his mate disappeared into the bush. But nobody had found the treasure by the time that a strange Mr. Hafner walks into the Bain's Hotel, owned by one sea captain, J.C. Voss, and says he needs some help. Here's the story. Enjoy. Sailing to Treasure Island, The Cruise of the Zora, by Captain J.C. Voss, edited, illustrated, and annotated by Linus Wilson. Annotated and abridged by Linus Wilson from Captain John Kloss Voss's Venturesome Voyages of Captain Voss, Tokyo, Kanada, Japan, Geisler and Gilbert Limited, and Yokohama, Japan, Herald Press, 1913. Cover art by Linus Wilson. Copyright 2018, Linus Wilson, Ox River Publishing, Lafayette, Louisiana, a division of Vermilion Advisory Services. Except for brief quotations, no part of this edition may be reproduced without the express written permission of Linus Wilson, Ox River Publishing, Vermilion Advisory Services, LLC. All rights are reserved. Chapter 1 a chance of a lifetime, seven million pounds sterling. My seafaring life commenced in the year 1877 when I was quite a young man and was spent up to the time I sailed the Zora in large sailing vessels, during which period I have filled all sorts of position from deck boy up to master. Throughout all those years, I certainly would not have believed that a vessel so small as the Zora could live through a heavy gale at sea, and naturally enough, should not have a thought of attempting a long sea voyage in any small craft, had it not been for a gentleman whose name was George Hafner, an American citizen. In the summer of 1897, when I was sitting comfortably in an easy chair in the Queen's Hotel, Victoria, British Columbia, a gentleman stepped up to me, saying, Are you Captain Vaughan? I replied in the affirmative. He then introduced himself as Mr. Hafner, handing me at the same time a letter saying that it was from an old friend of mine whose death had taken place at sea just 14 days previously, and with whom he had stayed during his last moments. The letter ran as follows. Dear friend John, you will be surprised to learn that I am now lying on my deathbed. Yes, dear friend, we are at present a long way out on the Pacific Ocean, and I shall never be able to see land any more, but shall be buried at sea like a dog, and the Pacific Ocean will be my grave. The bearer of this note is Mr. George Hafner, who knows the position where the great treasure lies on Cocos Island. Believe in him, and he will make you a rich man. Excuse my short note because I am very weak. Kindly remember me to all my old friends, and believe me, your dying friend, Jim Dempster. About five months previous to this meeting with Hafner, a Victoria sealing schooner of about 75 tons had been charted by several enterprising men of Victoria, of whom Dempster was one, for the purpose of sailing down to Cocos Island to make a search for great treasure supposed to be buried on that island. Hafner was in a position of a permit issued by the Costa Rica government to secure the treasure if found by him. He stated when this sealing schooner, the Aurora, arrived at Cocos Island, he had already been on the island for nine months, during which time he had vigorously searched for the treasure and had located it. 
Surprised at this, I asked him dubiously why he had not taken the treasure back to Victoria in the Aurora. He explained that having arrived at Cocos Island by the Costa Rica supply boat, which undertakes the trip every six months to supply the guard on the island with provisions, he met the crew of the Aurora. Not knowing anything of their intentions besides not liking the captain, he did not feel disposed to disclose the secret as to where the treasure was buried. He continued, Meanwhile, the crew of the Aurora worked with all their might and made excavations in many places without, however, having the slightest success. Finally, the men got tired and dissatisfied at having come on a wild goose chase. Besides, their provisions ran short, so they were compelled to return to Victoria, giving me passage at the same time. Shortly after our departure from Cocos Island, Dempster became ill, and as a passenger on board, I volunteered to nurse him. I did all I possibly could for him, but he grew worse and worse, so that it was soon plain to me that he would shortly succumb. Not knowing anybody in Victoria, and not being a sailor myself, I thought of getting in touch with the responsible person in Victoria who would join me in an expedition to Cocos Island to bring away the treasure. So I decided to confide the news that I had found the treasure to Dempster. Greatly surprised at this, he almost gained new life, but realized later that his end was near and that he himself could not profit by my communication. I then asked Dempster to give me the name of a reliable man in Victoria who would be in a position to procure for me a suitable vessel and crew with which to sail to Cocos Island and carry off the treasure. He mentioned your name and wrote the letter which I have just handed to you, because I have found from the day I first met Dempster on Cocos Island till he died that he was straightforward and a reliable man, I have decided to place confidence in you. I now ask, can you and will you procure for me a vessel and fit her out properly, sail with me to Cocos Island and assist me to put treasure on board and take it to Victoria? As compensation, I offer you one-third of whatever we may secure of the treasure, which would be the same as my own share, as we have to hand over one-third to the Costa Rica government. To my query, Hafner then explained that the treasure was valued at over seven million pounds sterling, so that each share would amount to, say, two million three hundred and thirty three thousand pounds and as it had been said that the treasure consisted principally of gold ingots the total quantity of this gold would weigh approximately fifty tons and measure roughly one hundred cubic feet Turning these gigantic figures over in my mind, my brain almost became dizzy. At last, at last, I thought to myself, your poor old daddy's words will come true. He often told me in a joking way, when you grow up, John, I shall make a millionaire of you. When I was about 16 years of age and reminded him of this promise, he thought it would cost too much money and recommended that I go out into the world and hustle for the million myself. He told me that if I kept hustling well and hard, I would certainly succeed in becoming a millionaire. Of course, like a good son, I took my father's advice, went out to sea, and from then till the day I met Hafner, I had been hustling up and down all around the world, but never had managed to commence becoming a millionaire, even in the Japanese sea. And as I was already past 40 years of age, I had almost lost confidence in my father's prophecy when meeting Hafner. This gentleman explained to me in detail where the treasure was buried and showed me a chart of the island with cross bearings marked on it 
to give the position. All that Hafner said appeared to me simple and straightforward, that I certainly arrived at the conclusion that my fortune was made and that I should in reality become a millionaire not only in cents and dollars but in pounds sterling, and a double header at that. What a grand feeling came over me, a poor man firmly believing that I would soon be the possessor of millions, the thought of which was with me day and night. I dreamt the first night after meeting Hafner that we were both standing on Cocos Island near a large cave, out of which glittering gold and sparkling diamonds were shining invitingly. To cut a long story short, I really felt the happiest man in the wide world. I did not fail to have a good time in advance of the prospect of becoming a real millionaire. In the meantime, I was looking round for a suitable vessel, and I found a hundred-ton schooner. Hafner, however, did not quite approve of it, thinking it was not really fit to carry such a valuable cargo. One fine day, he said that the vessel was unsuitable. He had, luckily for him, met Admiral Pallister of the Northwest British Squadron. The Admiral had agreed to make a trip to Cocos Island under the guidance of Hafner. Admiral Pallister would bring the treasure to Victoria in his flagship, the Imperius. This news struck me as a thunderbolt. Well, in that case, I said, I suppose I'm out of it? Very sorry indeed, he replied, but I'm sure you understand my position. In order to secure the treasure with safety, I must have a good ship, and what is more essential, protection, neither of which you can afford me. By placing myself in the hands of Admiral Pallister, I shall have both. I saw that Hafner was right, and probably should have done the same had I been in his position. However, I felt truly miserable. I felt as if I had lost my mental balance. All the castles I had already built in the air had vanished with this sudden blow. But what was worse, I had spent a little bit of my savings so that the tide of my banking account was at a low ebb. After leaving Hafner, I would not at first believe his story that a British man of war should undertake such an expedition. But it proved to be true when Admiral Pallister left Esquimalt Harbor in his flagship Imperius with Hafner on board and escorted by a cruiser for the south. So I thought to myself that instead of being on the road to fortune, I have to hustle again and harder than ever before. I solemnly vowed that I would never again build castles in the air, nor would I have a good time and spend money in advance of the strength of promise of good prospects. In the future, I would wait until I actually had the cash in hand. Chapter 2. In a Sloop on the High Seas after a lapse of about three months following the departure of the two vessels from Esquimalt Harbor, I have been anxiously awaiting news of their trip. I received it to my great surprise and joy in the following letter from Mr. Hafner. Dear friend Voss, I have to admit that I feel very sorry indeed at not having accepted your advice with regard to the hundred-ton schooner. I should have had the advantage of your company for a trip to Cocos Island. You know that at the time that I felt confident that it was to my advantage to avail myself of the man of war. Sorry to say the trip turned out to be a complete failure because I should never have been able to make use of the treasure after having placed it aboard the Imperius. During the voyage down, an officer one day questioned me about the treasure and asked me whether I knew what would be done with it after it was on board. I said, it will be taken to Victoria. He replied that a treasure such as that, when shipped on a British man-of-war, 
would have to be handed over to the admiral to the british government the latter would have to in turn hand it back to the rightful owner the peruvian government after carefully considering the officer's statement i made up my mind that the treasure should not be shipped on board this vessel in fact that it should not be found with my help on arrival at the island work was done at once commenced under my leadership i kept the men at a safe distance from the correct spot after continually shifting the men about for a fortnight they got tired also the officers who were watching them also grew weary of course great excitement prevailed the whole time everybody expected to see gold bricks and diamonds flying out by big shovelful but gradually disappointment set in when nothing came to light after all the hard labor the officer then told me that i must have made a mistake in the location which i reluctantly admitted i remarked that i really did not know any other place where it might be the good-natured officer looked at me with a smile and said that he would have to report my statement to the commander that night when i went on board i expected a severe calling down but nothing happened however the next morning we put to sea again and made for acapulco where i was put on shore and where i'm staying at the present time i certainly must give the british credit for being good-natured people as they took it all in good part if i had played that trick on the americans i'm certain they would have keel-hauled me then they would have hanged me on the main yard and put twelve bullets through me after that they would have finally have drowned me to make sure i was dead now dear friend i herewith repeat the offer made a short while ago in victoria come down here as quickly as possible with any kind of vessel you consider fit we will then sail to cocos island secure the treasure and put on board as much of it as the vessel will safely carry if we cannot bring off the whole lot at once we'll leave the rest on the island for a second voyage as it will be quite safe where it lies now kindly let me hear from you as soon as possible care of the g p o acapulco mexico yours very truly g hafner needless to say the contents of this letter excited me not a little the same feeling of having now the opportunity to become a millionaire took possession of me and my heart leaped with joy however i did not again build castles in the air neither did i have a good time in advance but instead i carefully thought the matter over i tried to arrange things as well as possible my finances were very low so that it was out of the question to procure a large vessel and i quickly came to the conclusion that it would be more advisable to start with a small one especially since i did not want more partners than were absolutely necessary further the season was favorable it being the month of june when the weather is generally fine along the pacific coast of america i therefore tried to buy a vessel of thirty or forty tons there were however no such craft available and i finally selected a ten-ton sloop called the zora truly she was a small vessel in which to make a sea trip of some four thousand miles but i had made up my mind firmly to go in whatever might happen there was no alternative as without money i could not obtain a larger boat so i bought the zora and fitted her out she was strongly built of oregon pine and fitted with heavy wooden setter board she had a straight stem and a nice moderately overhanging counter her dimensions were as follows length overall was thirty-five feet length on the water line was thirty feet beam was twelve feet 
Her draught with the centerboard up and about five tons of ballast inside her was three feet six inches. Her canvas consisted of a mainsail, gaff topsail, and jib. When the Zora was fully fitted out, I provisioned her with 200 gallons of fresh water, sufficient food, etc., to last three men for four months. When everything was on board, the vessel's draught or draft was a trifle over four feet. On July 5th, 1898, everything was ready for sea. I engaged two friends of mine to sail with me, Mac, who had never been to sea, and Han, who was a sailor like myself. The following afternoon, at one o'clock, we cast off our lines and sailed out of Victoria, B.C. Having kept our intended cruise secret, we cleared as a pleasure yacht with a light easterly breeze, all sails set, we left the James Bay boathouse and sailed down the harbor. Hundreds of Victoria inhabitants bade us farewell, waving their hats and handkerchiefs and wishing us bon voyage. Soon after, the wind freshened a little. In a short time, we passed the outer wharf and stood into the Royal Roads, after which we shaped our course for Race Rock, rounding it around four o'clock. Then we stood out to the west into the Pacific Ocean. The wind freshened considerably and hauled around to the west. At the same time, it threw up a lively choppy sea, which made the little vessel jump about worse than a bucking horse. Han and I, both old seamen, were used to large vessels only. Those larger vessels have an entirely different motion to the craft like the Zora. We did not feel overly comfortable, but poor Mac, for whom this was the first experience in a sailing boat, was hanging his head over the rail. He was singing out, If this thing keeps on jumping like this much longer, I shall have to throw up my Irish heart as everything else is already overboard. Seeing the plight that he was in, and since we other two were also feeling rather funny, we decided to stand into to Sook Inlet. It was a very nice little harbor for small vessels about five miles west of Race Rock. There we anchored at seven o'clock. Owing to strong westerly winds, we remained here until July 9th, when at four o'clock, with moderate easterly breeze and a fine clear morning, we made another start. Standing into the straits, the light easterly breeze soon freshened. Early in the afternoon, we passed Cape Flattery, which is the farthest point of land in the northwesterly direction of the United States of America. Now, the deep blue Pacific Ocean lay before us. About 40 miles from Cape Flattery lies Cape Beale, which is the farthest southwesterly point of Vancouver Island. Both promontories are supplied with fine lighthouses and are about 40 miles apart. This region is known among sailors on the Pacific coast as the Seaman's Graveyard because many staunch vessel with all her crew has gone down to the bottom there. Many have foundered in the heavy southwesterly gales or by being smashed up against the hard rocks on Vancouver shore. I shall not forget the night of April 1st, 1887. I was a second mate of the full-rigged American ship Top Gallant and bound out from the Straits of Juan de Fuca in company. We were almost side by side with the fine three-skysail yard full-rigged ship St. Stephen and an American bark whose name has slipped my memory. All three ships were under full sail when they passed Cape Flattery towards the evening, shaping their courses towards the southwest with a fresh easterly breeze. None of the vessels was more than five miles outside of Cape Flattery when the wind hauled round to the south with such a thick and threatening-looking weather. We are going to have a bad night of it, said our captain. The wind will most likely haul round into the south 
southwest, and then it will blow hard. It is blowing pretty hard already, I said. Shall we take in the three royals? Take in nothing, he replied. Now is the time to sail. We must get away from the Vancouver coast as fast as possible before the wind blows from the southwest and the gale falls upon us. The top gallant was well up in years, but still a strong vessel. Everything was in good order and condition. If ever the ship was sailed, she sailed that night. Her lee rail and deck were underwater, and heavy seas broke over her weather side. At seven o'clock, the main royal was blown away, after which the fore and mizzen royals were taken in. If the wind only continues to blow from the south for another hour, we shall be out of all danger, the captain said. To our sorrow it did not the wind soon hauled into the southwest and blew one of the hardest gales that was ever experienced on the northwest coast of north america all hands on deck to shorten sail the captain shouted the top gallant sails mainsail and some fore and aft canvas were taken in as quickly as possible in spite of our efforts some of the sails were blown to shreds before they could be secured to the yards the foresail lower and upper topsail and some fore and aft storm sails were left standing in spite of the sails being quite new and of the very best material they were torn to ribbons one after another by the tremendous force of the southwesterly gale at eleven o'clock while all hands were engaged on the foreyard arm in saving what was left of the foresail the lee fore lower topsail sheet parted it knocked one man from the foreyard overboard man overboard came the cry all along the yard with a few pieces left of the foresail having been secured all hands rushed down on deck to save the man owing to the darkness the howling and roaring noise of the storm and the breaking seas the man overboard could neither be heard nor seen the lifeboats of the ship were at that time and still are worse than useless to be launched in such weather instead all the crew got busy throwing ropes and life buoys after the man as luck happened the man got hold of one rope and was then quickly pulled on board he was none the worse for his trying experience at midnight the gale was at its height and all sails by this time had been blown away the good old ship lay in the trough of the seas at the mercy of the elements drifting gradually towards the vancouver shore we have lost our sails said the captain if the gale moderates by eight o'clock in the morning we shall by having sailed as we did have saved the ship cargo and crew sure enough captain wickberg of the top gallant was right we had carried on until the storm had blown all our sails to ribbons by doing so we had saved the ship cargo and crew when the gale moderated in the morning and the weather cleared we found ourselves within four miles of the vancouver shore new sails were then bent on we continued our voyage and arrived finally at our destination in safety the new and fine ship st stephen with her full crew captain his wife and family and the two lady passengers went to the bottom of the sea in that same night the bark which was in our company sailing out of the straits also went down that awful night two of her men were saved by hanging on to some wreckage when the bark went down in these same waters which have swallowed up so many young men and brave seamen i was now sailing in a ten-ton sloop comparing her, her with the large vessels in which i had up to then been sailing i almost came to the conclusion that i did not care making a four thousand mile voyage in this tiny craft to cocos island for all the money in the world 
But after all, I thought, what is life without money? With the Zora under full sail and an easterly breeze, we sailed hopefully out of the Straits of Juan de Fuca into the Pacific Ocean, shaping our course towards the south. Chapter 3. Encounter with the First Gale Shortly after passing Cape Flattery, the easterly wind acted in just about the same way as it did during the night when the St. Stephen was lost. It hauled from the east round to the south. However, the weather remained clear. I knew there was no danger of a storm, and so the Zora was kept by the wind under all sail, taking a southwesterly course. Toward evening, the wind fell light at nine o'clock when the light of Cape Flattery was dipping in the water. The breeze died out, and we were becalmed nineteen miles to the southwest. Besides the bright light of Cape Lighthouse, we saw several other lights from vessels, which were almost becalmed and drifting around in the same way as the Zora. As we were outside of the track of steamers we placed a bright light on deck and all three of us went down into the cabin lit our pipes and talked about our promising future max swore that if he could only get fifty thousand pounds sterling out of the cocos islands treasure he would be the king of ireland in very short time all sorts of castles went up in the air that evening when i went on deck just before midnight everything was moist with dew this being a sure sign in that part of the world that a westerly wind would be blowing the next day i went below saying gentlemen we shall have a westerly wind to-morrow as it is nearly midnight we had better draw for watches after which the man who draws the first will take the first watch till two o'clock the next man the second watch from two to four and the third from four to six keep watch for what said mac it is dead calm and fine weather why not all of us turn in and have a good sleep as we did in nook harbor i replied it is nothing of the sort mac we must watch our little vessel now night and day while we are at sea we then drew for watches and each took his turn the next morning at about eleven o'clock a light breeze came up from the northwest the zora started to go south the breeze soon freshened and by seven o'clock in the evening the mountain tops of vancouver island dropped out of sight the following two days we experienced fine weather with the same wind taking the boat along at a rate of about one hundred and seventy-five miles per day on the following day the wind suddenly increased which compelled us to take in one roof after the other at three o'clock in the afternoon she was going under a three-reef mainsail at a speed of about eight and a half miles an hour with a wind dead aft in spite of some of the seas breaking quite heavily the zora steered excellently and we went along quite dry however knowing from experience in large vessels about the danger of running before a high sea with increasing wind force i thought it better to experiment with the zora in time as i did not know her peculiarities i well remembered an incident that took place when i was quite a young man on the canadian bark j w parker coming from the west coast of south america with a cargo of nitrate and making for the english channel with a strong southwesterly gale behind us the bark steered easily under the main lower and upper topsail the fore lower topsail and the foresail at about three o'clock in the afternoon when i had been lashed to the wheel together with another seaman the captain came out on deck and observing the breaking seas behind us and that the vessel remained quite dry commented on the fact that she was a splendid vessel to run before it i certainly believe this also seeing that the breaking seas overhauling us at great speed passed under our stern with such a roaring noise that it would give me shivers 
However, the vessel would always raise her stern to the occasion, and the sea would pass without any damage. It was a few minutes to four o'clock when another large breaker came along. I heard it coming, but men at the wheel are not allowed to look back when a vessel is running hard. Thus, I did not see it approaching. This time, the vessel's stern did not rise quickly enough. The sea broke over her stern with such a tremendous force that it did all the damage it possibly could have short of sending the ship and crew to the bottom owing to the rope with which we two were fastened to the wheel having too much slack i was washed under the port rail while my mate was hanging overboard as the rope was still fastened to him he was successfully pulled back on board the cabin doors and skylight on the cabin were smashed to splinters and the cabin was full of water several doors of the forward house were also smashed the same wave that did all this damage caused the vessel to broach too it appeared to me that the ship would have foundered had it not been for the good carpenter who put her together when the vessel broaches too in a heavy gale it happens in a few seconds the deck is filled with water from rail to rail and men if not washed overboard are unable to attend to any sails quickly enough to save them at the same time that this happened to the j w parker and while the sea was breaking over her weather rail the few sails which had been left standing blew away the ship was safe however after losing her sails she lay broadside on to the wind and the sea was quite comfortable after the gale moderated all hands were busy bending new sails on i heard the first mate who was an old experienced seaman saying we can thank god and not our seamanship that we are alive i have found out during later years that he was perfectly right and well aware of the great mistake that had been made in running too long thinking back over the accident and some other little troubles that i had met with at sea i made up my mind to heave the zora to at once I brought her up to the wind with her three-reefed mainsail and storm staysail. My mates were standing by to haul in the main sheet while I had the tiller. I was watching for my chance to luff her up in as smooth a sea as possible. When I thought my chance had come while the boat was on top of a comparatively smooth sea, I put down the helm. The main sheet was hauled in as quick as lightning. The boat shot round, and before the next sea approached, the Zora was sailing by the wind. She was shipping, however, a big sea over her bow. The centerboard had not been lowered since we sailed into Sook Harbor. In spite of being up, the boat would range ahead under the small sail sails taking a lot of water on board and making things very unpleasant in general i then commenced operating with the vessel trying to place her in such a position as to make her lie comfortably first we took in the staysail altogether with that the boat shot up into the wind and nearly shook the mainsail to pieces then we tried her with the three reef mainsail and the centerboard down regulating her with the rudder so that she would not yaw about this also proved a failure under the above two trials the boat kept forging ahead and would not lay hove to at the same time she was very wet and unmanageable sometimes she was going ahead and sometimes she was moving astern placing us placing us all in imminent danger of foundering we then hauled up the centerboard hoisted the staysail with the sheet flat into windward and the helm halfway down this fixed her there she lay from three to four points off the wind and making almost square drift to the lure at the same time she was comparatively comfortable towards the night the wind increased to a heavy gale but still the zora lay 
quite well and almost dry however the vessel would at times shiver from the pressure of the sails it became evident that we still carried too much canvas unfortunately we could not make them any smaller being reefed down entirely then i decided to take recourse to a sea anchor although i've never used one before thus i did not know the real value of it we also lacked one on board i proceeded in the following manner the main boom crutch and some boards from the bunks about six feet long were tied together with some old canvas into a sort of bundle the forty-pound anchor fastened to the same then we made a three-inch rope fast to this improvised sea anchor we dropped it over the weather bow took in the staysail and when the sea anchor was about fifty yards away belayed the end of the line to the mast the main sheet being hauled in flat i certainly expected the boat to swing head to wind as soon as the rope became tight however i was very much mistaken the vessel would sometimes swing almost broadside on against the wind and sea under the pressure of the sea our boat almost turned turtle we then lowered the mainsail altogether which proved somewhat a remedy we were still not lying quite enough and shipping water all the time i was then convinced that the only way to steady her was to hoist a small sail aft as we had no mizzen mast we took the storm staysail and bent the tack to the end of the main boom we unhooked the peak halyard bent the head of the staysail to it and hauled the staysail's sheet forward instead of aft thus we obtained a flat fore and aft sail over the stern of the boat the zora at once swung head to wind and rode as comfortably to her sea anchor as a vessel rides her mud hook in a landlocked harbor when we were sitting in the cabin we could hardly imagine that we were actually experiencing a howling gale at sea with huge breaking seas the direction of the wind was north-northwest and the zora owing to her poor sea anchor drifted at a rate of about one and a half to one and three quarters miles per hour to the south-southeast the gale kept up its fury for nearly two days it was really a pleasure to see the little vessel with the help of her sea anchor mounting those large combers with perfect ease and comfort when the gale had sufficiently moderated we hauled the sea anchor on board under very small riding sails we kept the boat on her southerly course again chapter five arrival at coco's island on the first night out we had another fierce thunderstorm in order to get away from this unpleasant coast we let the zora go for all she was worth under a three-reef mainsail and a storm staysail steering north-westward by doing so we soon managed to leave this treacherous weather behind us on the next day we ran into a nice moderate northeasterly trade wind that was a change that we welcomed now we aimed for coco's island which was only sixteen hundred miles distant with this nice breeze on our port quarter we soon ran off a hundred miles after another both the trade wind and the fine weather kept on just as the doctor ordered them until september seventh at three o'clock while having an afternoon nap i was suddenly awakened by a tremendous noise on deck i shouted what's the matter with you folks out there why can't you keep quiet when an honest man wants to enjoy a rest no time to sleep now replied jack coco's island is in sight we must get ready to discharge our ballast and make room for the gold bricks and diamonds mac replied old chap i can see the gold bricks sticking out of the side of the island come on deck and have a look 
went on a yachting cruise, Mac could never tell the truth if he could replace it by something else. I went up, however, up on deck, and sure enough, the island was in sight. Only the tops of the mountains were visible in the distance, about 60 miles away. During the night, the breeze fell light, but the next morning, we were up to the east end of the island. Owing to the wind having dropped altogether, we anchored in Chatham Bay. With breakfast over, Mac and I took the dinghy and pulled round to Wafer Bay, where the goods we had come for were supposed to be stored. After rounding a sharp, rocky promontory, Wafer Bay opened up and a small house came in sight on the upper end of the right side of the bay. We made for it and landed a few yards from the building. Out of the house stepped a man with a rather slim build. I should say that he was certainly six feet four inches in height. He had a beard hanging down from his chin, which was almost two feet long. The gentleman was followed by a small, pleasant-looking lady. On reaching us, the gentleman introduced himself as Mr. Kiesler, governor of Cocos Island, and the lady as his wife. Pleased to meet you, Mr. and Mrs. Giesler, I said. This was not quite 99% true, because I had nourished the hope that we should have the island to ourselves. Where do you come from? asked the governor. Victoria, B.C., I replied. We make Chatham Bay this morning at daybreak. Got becalmed, dropped anchor, and rode here in our dinghy. You are after the treasure, of course, said Mr. Giesler. No, not exactly. We just are on a little pleasure cruise and thought we would come and have a look at the island. That was another lie. Of course, Mr. Giesler, Max said, if you've got any gold bricks you don't want, we don't mind taking them along. Mrs. Giesler smiled at that and said the gold bricks were scarce on Cocos Island. Are they, I said. I thought she had lots of them. Yes, replied the governor. There are lots of them here, but we've got to find them first. Owing to Mr. Giesler's size and appearance, I considered it advisable to keep on the right side of him. I therefore said, Mr. Giesler, we have got a few days to spare. Will you allow us to prospect for the treasure? And if we find it, will you allow us to take it on board our vessel? You can prospect as much as you like, replied Mr. Giesler. But whatever you find, you must give to the Costa Rican government one-third. I can see no way of avoiding this gift of one-third to the Costa Rica government, so I agreed to the governor's offer. When everything was settled, Mr. Giesler said, Now, you had better go and bring your vessel round here. And by the way, how big is she? Ten tons, I said. Ten tons, well, well, well. And you came all the way from Victoria in a ten-ton vessel? Why, a ten-ton vessel will not even hold a fifth part of the gold that is buried here. We assured Mr. Giesler that we would probably be satisfied with ten tons of gold and a ton of diamonds. We would let him or the Costa Rican government keep the rest. He seemed to be well satisfied and asked us to come into his house and have a drink. I've never been known to refuse a good thing. We followed Mr. and Mrs. Giesler into the house. In a little more than ten minutes, Mrs. Giesler had a table set for us, fit for a king. There was fine homemade bread and jam, ham, eggs, cold roast, wild boar, and other things. This was in addition to the good breakfast that we had before leaving the vessel. We put that on top of it and just about cleared up the table. When Mrs. Giesler saw all the empty dishes on the table, she asked if we had plenty of provisions on board. Of course, I knew what she was alluding to, but now let me give 
the landlubber, just a little advice. Never offer a yachtsman anything to eat when he comes on shore, unless you mean it. A yachtsman, when cruising, is always hungry and doesn't know how to say no when anything in the shape of eatables comes his way. What is the draught of your vessel? asked Mr. Giesler. It's about four feet, I replied. Is that all? Well, then you can bring your vessel right up here to my house and tie her up to the trees. He then took me outside to show where to put the vessel. Right at the head of Wafer Bay is a sand spit about 300 yards deep between the higher land and the deep water. It is about half a mile wide. On both sides there is high land. At high tide the sand spit is about three feet underwater. On the right side, when coming into the bay and within a few yards of Mr. Giesler's house, there is a stream coming down from the mountains just alongside. It is large and deep enough for the Zora to lay comfortably. The stream had washed a hollow through the sand spit, which the governor claimed sufficiently large to allow our boat to pass through. I, of course, took his word for it, especially as the man said he had been on the island for 18 years. He knew all the ins and outs of the place. The only thing that he did not know, he said, was where the gold was hidden. We'll find that out easy enough, Max said. It was then about 10 o'clock, as Mr. Giesler said it would be high water at noon. Mac and I went back in our dinghy to bring Zora around. That would allow us to cross the spit at high tide. A nice little breeze had sprung up from the west, and with a small sail set in our dinghy, we were soon alongside the sloop. Jack, in the meantime, had been fishing. He was busy frying some of his catch, grumbling all the while that the fish refused to bite. And how did you catch these fish if they didn't bite, asked Mac. I went down and hooked them on, was Jack's reply. Come along here now and get the anchor and sail set and have your growl afterwards, I said. As my two shipmates were always right on hand when I said the word, we had our anchor up and sail set in no time. With the centerboard down, we beat up against the westerly breeze to Wafer Bay. On rounding the rocky point, we saw Giesler hoisting the Costa Rica flag, which he had informed us was a sign that the water was high enough for Zord across the sand spit. I at once directed my course for the channel, and everything went fine until we got halfway across the spit. Then she struck a rock, and in less time than I can write it down, the sloop filled with water. We did not even have time to save our provisions, much of which was spoiled by seawater. The sails were lowered at once. We tried hard to get the vessel off, but were unable to move her. I felt like shooting the governor, and I think we would have shot him if it had not been for his wife. All three of us had murder in our hearts. Giesler was standing in front of his house and singing out, What is the matter? Come here and see what is the matter, I retorted. After which, Giesler came wading through about three feet of water to help us to get the boat off. We did all we possibly could. Stores, ballast, and everything else that we had on board were put on shore, but the Zora remained immovable. She had a rock through her bottom and was full of water. We were 300 miles from the mainland and were stranded on a small island with no steamer or any other means of connection. In addition, nearly all our provisions spoiled with salt water. Truly, ours was not an enviable position. Max said that he would like to get a gold brick with which to knock Giesler's head. Jack said the only thing we could do was to follow the example of Robinson Crusoe. You fellows had better stop your fooling, I interrupted. This is a very serious matter, and we must get the boat off somehow. We had better get several small trees out of the bush, and when it's low water, we'll pry her off. 
Giesler, after seeing his mistake, helped us in every way he possibly could. At three o'clock, she will be high and dry, he said. In about two hours, we had everything ready to raise her. Sure enough, at the time the water was from under her, a sharp rock could be seen sticking through her bottom. We then got the levers to work. In about two hours, we had her off the rock. Before night, her bottom had been repaired, and she was again afloat, after which we moored her alongside Giesler's house, where she was out of danger. The governor told us that there were ample eatables, including wild hogs on the island. He said that he would do all he could to see us right again. We then banished all care from our minds, and after a little celebration and good night's sleep in Giesler's house, we started briskly early the next morning to prospect for the great treasure." Okay, if you want to hear the end of the story, you should make a pledge at patreon.com slash slowboatsailing, and you can hear chapters 5 through 7, the editor's note and biography of Sailing to Treasure Island, The Cruise of the Zora by J.C. Voss. For a limited time, the minimum pledge is a dollar while supplies last, and a dollar or more unlocks how to sail around the world part-time there are more audiobooks for higher pledge levels including my book slow boat to cuba about starting my round the world trip and around the world single-handed the cruise of the islander by harry pigeon the first man to sail around the world by the panama canal and cape of good hope in a small yacht that's a that's a higher pledge level but you can get at least two audiobooks for the minimal pledge level plus you unlock 40 bonus episodes of this podcast unfortunately we don't make a lot of money producing books here my wife and i have full-time jobs that pay for a hundred percent of our living and voting expenses and we're just trying to not subsidize the podcast too much and we couldn't do it without the patrons thanks for listening to the podcast thanks for watching the youtube channel and uh, if you want to read the book then it's available on lulu.com just search under captain voss and you should be able to find it and i'll also have links in the show notes so if you think about it, the market for sailing narrative books is, is really small market. Uh, it's about 2,000 people that listen to this podcast every episode at the current time. And there are a few other podcasters that sell their captaincy services. So if they get a $4,000 berth, they're going to make more than I can make it in a year of book sales with six titles. Or if they sell their brokerage services, if they broker one, you know, $100,000 boat that they got through the pod, their podcast, they're going to make more than I can make in a year or five years selling books. So it's, it's, it's a small market and there's really no audiobook producers of new sailing books out there anymore that Amazon has been so greedy that they've taken such a big share of the revenues that they cannot be produced for any reasonable amount. And I lose money producing this book. One of the things I had to do to produce this book was buy a first edition of The Ventures and Voyages of Captain Voss which is $250. I'll never recoup that cost. Uh, so it, it, every little bit helps, but it's it's uh, it's a labor of love. And that's uh, why I produce these uh, books and audio books is because I think that there's a lot current sailors can learn from people like uh, J.C. Voss and Harry Pigeon. And those people have been unfairly forgotten 
throughout the course of decades. And if we remember them and we learn their lessons, we don't have to relive them. So I hope you can be part of educating current sailors about lessons learned from the sailing greats like J.C. Voss and Harry Pigeon and many others that I hope to bring to you through this podcast. I'm Linus Wilson. Thanks for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Go have some fun on the water. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.